Welcome to Courageous Wellness. My name is Erica Stein. And I'm Allie French. And this is a podcast about individual journeys within wellness and how to navigate it all. After Allie experienced a cancer diagnosis in her 20s. And Erica went through a sustained 50-pound weight loss and self-love journey. We created a platform to interview real people from all walks of life that have combined all types of practices. From physical wellness to emotional and spiritual, we hear courageous stories and focus on why it's important to share them. We are both certified integrative nutrition health coaches and together with our community are learning to live our most purposeful lives by sharing one courageous story at a time. It takes courage to share these journeys and by talking about them, we aim to destigmatize the process. We want you to be your own health advocate, feel educated and informed on the latest in health and wellness and empower you to feel your absolute best. And because we want to bring forth a wide variety of stories, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect our own, but we hope the diverse and varied stories will empower you to make the best choices for your own life. So join us as we and our community share our courageous wellness. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the show this week. Uh, Before we get started and give a formal intro for our guest this week, um, Erica and I just wanted to take a minute and check in, say hello, and uh, share some kind of fun wellness tips and um, things that we're trying in our own life right now. So is there anything you wanted to kind of give an update on or share about? Yes, I will share a quick update before we get into this episode, which I'm so excited about, even though Allie and I aren't parents yet, um, we really learned so much from Alex. So if you don't have kids yet, or if you do, this is a great episode for everyone just ahead of the conversation. But yes, um, I guess my update this week is fitness related. And I think yours is too, Mm -hmm. but I just did my first live zoom workout. Um, through the sweats in the city app, which I think I mentioned in last week's solo. Um, it's where I found the fascia flossing class as well. Um, but throughout the whole pandemic, I had never done a live zoom workout and it was so great. Actually, like I felt the energy of the other people in class and I wasn't brave enough to turn my camera on. I turned it off. Um, I was also mirroring to my TV. So it was in a complicated position, but yeah, I loved it. So if anybody else has thought about taking a zoom class or been interested, I really enjoyed taking a live zoom workout class and it was great. And it was a dance cardio with, um, her name is Megan. I think it was the class with city sweat. Um, so I think she's based in New York, but it was great and it was so fun and I really enjoyed it. What about you, Allie? How, what is your wellness update for the week? So unlike Erica, I don't really enjoy cardio exercise, but I've noticed I'm like a big walker and stuff. So I do like light cardio, but, um, and I've been doing a ton of Melissa Wood health, which is great and strength based, like, um, with strength based training, like Pilates yoga style stuff, but mostly with your own body weight with some light weights. But I really felt a desire to up my, like do more cardio, not like rat race style, but just to really elevate my heart rate and like do it a few times a week. Um, I just felt like I really needed that. And, um, so anyway, 
I, Joseph Carella, who is, you know, an old friend, he was on the show. I used to take his class live in LA. He has um, a company called 567 Broadway and it's fabulous. I don't know how to even explain it other than like cardio dance to show tunes. If you are a musical theater nerd, it's so fun. Even if you're not, it's just so much fun. And like in person, he uses like gold top hats as props. And like, it's just over the top and so much fun. But I realized that he was on YouTube and I was like, oh, and he has like these short 15 minutes, anything from like a five minute ab workout to like 15 minutes to dance combinations. And you don't have to be a dancer. This is like for everybody. These are like going to do an aerobics class. Um, and so I put them on, on YouTube and I got on my rebounder and that's like my new thing to do now is like, try to do Joseph's cardio dance, Broadway workouts on my little rebounder. I'll do 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And it's really fun. I was like, well, if this is the only thing that, you know, it takes for me to get my heart rate up, then so be it. This is what it takes. That is so fun. And and when we took Joseph's class in LA and we'll link in the show notes, his episode. So if anyone wants to listen to it, they can find it. It was the most fun I've ever had in a workout class. And, and you really feel like a cast member in the show. Like he, it's like, he sets the mood. Absolutely. You get to live your Broadway dreams through his workout class. So we will link that in the show notes too, if anyone wants to check out the episode with Joseph, because it was so good. Um, but yeah, do you want to get into the episode, Allie? Yes. So, um, this week and today on the show, we welcome Alex Caspero. She's the co-founder of the plant-based juniors community with her co-founder, Whitney, both moms and registered dietitians with a passion for making childhood nutrition as effortless as possible. On the show, Alex shares with us about their new book, The Plant-Based Baby and Toddler, which offers easy-to-digest nutritional facts and guidelines that aren't available elsewhere. And it has a special focus on the most important period of a child's life when it comes to developing good eating habits, infancy, and toddlerhood. On this episode, we unpack myths about childhood nutrition and discuss everything from establishing a healthy microbiome from early childhood, meeting nutrition needs through food and supplementation, and how all children, whether plant-based or omnivores, can get more nutrient-dense food options on their plates. This episode, although very educational for parents, has something for everyone. Ali and I loved this conversation and learned so much. So even if you don't have children, you can learn a lot from Alex's expertise. She has a wealth of knowledge and an easy and non-dogmatic style in her approach to plant-based eating. We even talk about the best ways to navigate the social components of food for developing children. So we really hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is sponsored by Milk and Honey. Guys, I am so excited to share our new sponsor, Milk and Honey, with you because I have been using their baking soda-free deodorant exclusively for over two years. This gentle, aluminum-free, baking soda-free deodorant was designed to nourish sensitive skin while keeping you feeling and smelling fresh all day long. When I decided that I wanted to make the switch to a clean aluminum-free deodorant, I tried so many different brands, and each and every time I was plagued with those red itchy bumps under my arm on top of not feeling confident whatsoever that I did not smell. 
Milk and Honey not only never once gave me those pesky little red bumps, but also passed the smell test, even after some of LA's toughest workout classes. This is my ride or die deodorant, and we are so excited to partner with them. Milk and Honey is a line of non-toxic, effective, and safe bath, body, and skincare products made in small batches in Austin, Texas. They source ingredients as hyper clean as possible, which means both choosing organic and making thoughtful, informed choices on safe ingredients. Milk and Honey is a female founded and funded brand. And in addition to clean deodorant, they also carry non-toxic bath, body and skincare products like hydration creams, cleansers, soaps, body polish, and lots more that will make you feel nourished inside and out. If you want to try Milk and Honey, you can receive 15% off your order by visiting milkandhoney.com and using the code CWPODCAST, one word, at checkout. You can also find the direct link in our show notes. This episode is brought to you by our health coaching subscription service on Patreon. The Courageous Wellness Collective has expanded on Patreon to bring our listeners and clients an all-access, accessible platform to educate, inform, and create nutrition and lifestyle habits to meet your personal goals. For $8.99 a month, patrons will receive weekly video content on topics ranging from blood sugar stabilization, gut health, hormone balance, energy, sleep, skin health, how to shop the grocery store, pantry staples, and much more. Included, you'll also receive access to monthly virtual webinars, recipes, and special guest content too. With this subscription, you are guaranteed at least four pieces of fresh health coaching content each month. To learn more and become a patron, visit www.patreon.com slash courageous wellness, or check out our show notes. We look forward to welcoming you to our coaching community. So welcome, Alex. Thank you for being here. We are very excited to have this conversation. And so let's just jump into it. Can you share with us how, how you got into the plant-based world and how it led to now the work you do as a plant-based mom? Yeah, I, I always joke. I wish I had like a really inspiring story, um, but mine is like the opposite of inspiring. Uh, so I had this like college boyfriend who I affectionately refer to him as like a meathead because that's what he was. Like he was really into bodybuilding. He was doing competitions while we were together and he would just eat like an insane amount of, of protein, of animal protein. So he'd like wake up in the middle of the night and drink milk and eat like cans of tuna Anyways, we had this like traumatic breakup my senior year of college. And I was just like so grossed out by all of those things he did. My my girlfriend uh, came over like that next morning and brought me coffee and brought me a copy of the book, uh, Skinny Bitch. And I like read it and I was like, oh, okay, I'm done. Like, I don't want to eat meat anymore. Like this is sort of this like breakup from like what he represented. And I was just sort of like learning all of these things. And I was studying nutrition at the time. I was uh, getting my degree in dietetics. So a lot of it like was kind of aligning with what I was learning anyways, but that's really my story. I mean, that was in 2006 and I haven't eaten meat since, uh, I've kind of evolved a little bit since then. So Whitney and I actually both consider ourselves to be predominantly plant-based. Uh, and I should say Whitney is sort of my other, uh, PBJ, uh, mama dietitian duo. 
so what that means is that we, we, you know, pr primarily follow a plant-based diet, but we'll occasionally allow for some animal products, especially when we're traveling. My background in dietetics is really into intuitive eating. I worked a lot with eating disorders and for me, it works best not to have like strict labels. I find that I'm uh, much more sort of at peace and sort of easier to navigate this, like, you know, diet uh, decisions, culture, world, et cetera, if I'm not putting like labels on myself. So, uh, uh, that's sort of my, my plant-based story and then becoming a mom. So I was pregnant with my son in 2016. And I remember being so nervous, you know, at that time I had been plant-based, mostly plant-based for about a decade. And I had a lot of questions, you know, I think that's really natural for a lot of parents. All of a sudden it's like, well, is this right? You know, am I doing this? Okay. And my midwives were like, well, you really need to eat some meat. You know, I'm really concerned about your protein and your iron levels. And I was like, well, hold on. I, I know that I can get all of these nutrients from plants. Like I am a dietitian. Like I, I understand this, this research, but at the same time, I wasn't feeling really confident to be able to explain my decision. Uh, and Whitney was also pregnant with her son and sort of having a similar feeling. So we just decided to be like, all right, if we're sort of having these, these concerns and questions and want to feel better about our decision, we know that other parents are too. And that's really why we started plant-based juniors was sort of to create this, like this community, this place that parents could, could come and feel like empowered in their decisions. Uh, and then, you know, it really just sort of took off from there because, you know, as we were feeling, there wasn't anything like this, you know, I didn't feel like there was anything that was really evidence-based, really specific in this niche that I could turn to and feel confident about. So that's sort of the story of, of how PPJs uh, got started. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. And I, you know, Erica and I personally, obviously we have many different guests on the show who have different sort of points of view and experiences, but we also personally are not very dogmatic in the way that we approach um, nutrition. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I think it's really interesting that you guys chose, especially as dietitians, right, who have this wealth of knowledge about, about nutrition specifically and, and the body. Um, but that you chose to explore this world because I'm sure a lot of people, uh, you know, feel great on a predominantly, I know a lot of people feel great on a predominantly plant-based diet and there's a lot of health benefits to that. But then when you're going into this world of like preconception, prenatal, yeah. and then, and then, um, postpartum too. And then with small children and their nutritional needs, I don't feel like that's talked about. I mean, like you said, it's very niche and, um, maybe not as, I mean, I guess maybe I haven't had a child yet, so it might be something that I haven't personally dove into, but like not as sort of mainstream as far as children's nutritional needs as well, as far as like, you know, articles that you read and I'm sure in yeah. like parenting magazines and things like that, but um, you know, we've grown up in this culture where like kids need milk, cow's milk. That's right. That's and, right. Yeah. I'm um, just sort of like these cultural norms about children's nutrition, but yet we also know that kids are sicker and sicker and getting sicker younger than they ever have before and dealing with chronic illness and diabetes, you know, all these things at a, at a younger age and at, at a larger rate than ever before. So I'd love to know both of you as, as dietitians and as um, new moms at the time, how did you start doing the research for yourselves? And then how did you ensure that you got the proper nutrients that you needed during these phases of 
both pregnancy and then like new motherhood postpartum. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. Right. We're talking about these periods that are so critical for growth and development. Right. I mean, it's one thing to mess it up in a sense for myself. It is like another thing to feel like I'm going to be responsible for my child's well-being. And like, oh my gosh, if I don't get this right, you know, some, some serious negative consequences could happen. Right. So, you know, no, no pressure. Um, but I, I remember at the time feeling like, Okay. I also know that the standard sort of like way that we're currently feeding our kids also isn't great, right? We look at the research one in 10 kids gets enough fiber. One in 10 gets enough produce. You know, I hate talking childhood obesity is such this like really big topic. There's so many factors that go into it. So, you know, it's not just diet. There's also like environmental and systems that are sort of in part of that. Uh, but we also know that those rates are on the rise, right? Things that we typically see in adulthood, like type two diabetes are starting to become more and more childhood diseases, right? So when we're looking at sort of like what's already out there, I also knew that there has to be something better for the way that we're currently feeding kids. And that's also sort of why we have this predominantly plant-based philosophy, because there's a lot of good research out there on vegetarian diets. There's a lot of good research out there on what happens when kids are on healthier diets compared to the standard American diet, but there's not a ton of research out there on vegan diets. And we're really open about that and say, you know, there's, there's just not that many studies. There's a lot of ethics that goes into actually studying kids, right? So some of these reasons behind that, but we don't have this sort of vast library to be able to say, okay, these are all of these, you know, studies we can ensure that we know exactly what to do and that all of these health outcomes that we're worried about are going to be taken care of. What we do know is that there are nutrients that kids need in these certain periods and pregnancy too. And we also know that where you can find them is both in animal foods, yes, but also in plant foods. And so at PBJs, we're really about educating parents on, you know, the same way that we would if we were talking to any parent, right? We need to make sure that we're getting enough calories, enough fat, enough zinc, enough iron, enough DHA, and where those items are found and how we can maximize those in our kids' diet. Because at the end of the day, it's really the nutrition that matters, right? Whether or not you're getting iron from uh, red meat or whether or not you're getting iron from legumes, it's still iron. But how do we sort of maximize that intake and how do we maximize that bioavailability? And that's really where we feel like our education is to parents. And it's also why we say we're inclusive of everybody, you know, because if you're someone who's like, well, my kid doesn't perhaps like meat, or I don't want to serve a lot of meat, or my child isn't eating as much as I want. Great. You know, we've got so many plant-based options that are really applicable. We think to all families. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I was one of those. I mean, I still don't eat, I'm not plant-based, but I just don't love meat and I don't eat it very often. And I've been like that probably my whole life. Um, but yes, my parents definitely, you know, they, they did their best, but resources like this would be so wonderful. And I think it's great that you mentioned, I know fiber is so lacking in adults and children, right? And so we think so much when you said that, I instantly was even like, wow, we focus so much on protein, but like fiber, which we know, and I'm so passionate about fiber and gut health. Um, we don't focus on that. And it's so key and crucial to our health. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, I'm curious, as Ali mentioned, right? Like cow's milk specifically is so big for you hear it for children. And my own brother was lactose intolerant, um, as a child and he grew out of it, but they put him on goat's milk, right? Like they were, that's the milk he chose. So can you talk to us a little bit about milk alternatives? What's best, um, as opposed to cow's milk or maybe even goat's milk? Cause I, I think that's probably a common alternative. Yeah. And, um, and then do you need to supplement, right? Like if, if we aren't eating meat, 
do we need to supplement? So let's tackle sort of the, the milk conversation first, because there's a lot of things in there. Kids, adults, we all need calcium, right? That is an essential nutrient. And, you know, the dairy board is really great about linking this idea that cow's milk is calcium. And so I think when you ask someone to perhaps uh, consider not drinking cow's milk or perhaps another option, the first question is, well, where am I going to get my calcium, right? We, we want to make sure that we're getting enough calcium intake, uh, but we also know that you don't have to get it from cow's milk. So the first thing I would say to someone is you can get all of the calcium you need on a plant-based diet, just out of whole foods. I will also say it's a lot harder to do that, especially when it comes to kids, because we're considering things like pickier eating, more selective about certain foods, smaller bellies. You know, I can make sure perhaps I'm getting enough eating things like broccoli and quinoa and white beans and tahini, but my three-year-old is, he likes broccoli. He's not going to eat three cups of it. Right. And so I likely need to make sure that we're doing something similar like we would in a cow's milk because one cup of cow's milk uh, provides about 300 milligrams of calcium. A fortified non-dairy milk, like a soy milk contains about 350, 400 milligrams of calcium, depending on the brand. So sort of like as a one-to-one, you know, sort of equivalency, I can say, okay, instead of having cow's milk on your formula, I'm going to give you this soy milk on your formula instead, and know that you're going to be getting the same amount of calcium. So that's really sort of the way that I'd recommend, whether we're talking about lactose intolerance, uh, whether we're talking about kids who perhaps don't sit well with dairy for other reasons, or who just don't want to drink dairy, there's a lot of of non-dairy fortified options out there. Goat's milk may work for someone too. And that's also going to have similar levels of calcium. And all of these options are going to have similar levels of bioavailability, which means that the 300 milligrams that you absorb from the cow's milk is going to be similar of the absorption that you're going to do from a non-dairy milk. Um, we do prefer, especially when we're talking about toddlers, uh, either a fortified soy option or a fortified pea. Uh, and that's because the amino acid profile is going to be similar to a cow's milk. And also those options are going to be higher in the amino acid lysines. That's something that can be a little bit more limiting uh, on a plant-based diet. Soy in particular is also a rich source of choline, which is really important for cognitive development. So we also wanna sort of ensure that we're maximizing that nutrient intake. As far as supplements go, there are a few things that I consider to be non-negotiable, right? B12 is not reliably found in plant-based foods. Uh, it's, it's found in animal foods. Actually, uh, most farm animals are given B12 because we have cobalt issues in the soil. So we have to make sure to supplement that. So I sort of say that because people sometimes think like, well, if you have to supplement, it can't be natural. It can't be healthy. We are all supplementing at some point, even if you don't think that you're actually quote unquote taking supplements, milk has D added to it. It's got iodine because of the way that we sterilize the equipment. Uh, B12 is added to farm animals in their diet. So then you're going to consume that when you eat them. So there's supplements at so many levels of our food system. Uh, but yes, B12 is a non-negotiable for us. Iodine may be considering on the diet, right? We sort of recommend for younger toddlers, especially to get about half of the RDA in iodine. You can get this in a multivitamin or just in uh, iodine drops. And the reason is because we don't want to be relying too much on iodized salt for younger babies. Uh, you don't actually need that much iodized salt in order to meet iodine needs. 
easy to do it in adults, a little bit harder in children. We're trying to sort of limit that added salt intake. And then vitamin D we think is a good idea for all kids, regardless of diet, just because there are so few foods that are a good source of vitamin D. Uh, cow's milk, like I said, has it added, but you'd have to have three to four cups a day to sort of meet uh, that recommendation. And then DHA is something again that we recommend, especially for our younger toddlers. Uh, there's sort of really good research to get enough DHA for the first few years of life. Uh, after that, the research is sort of mixed. It can be a more expensive supplement. So we sort of say for parents who have kids two and younger, we recommend DHA supplementation. After that, if you want to continue, great. There doesn't seem to be a downside, but it's not as essential in the research as we see for the younger population. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a good thing. You bring up some really important points, just nutri nutrition in general, whether it's for small children or for all of us talking about the soil where we like, you know, nutrition goes all the way back into like the quality of the soil too. Cause some of the vegetables that we even eat now don't have, are not as rich are nutrient dense as they might've once be might sorry, I can't speak, might have once been due to the quality of the soil changing over time. Um, and agricultural practices, which is another conversation probably for another day. But um, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because I think sometimes this idea of supplementation, oh, well, that's not necessary if you're just eating certain foods. And it's like, well, actually, sometimes the foods themselves are fortified too, mm -hmm. as, mentioned as well. Yeah. So just great things to think about that I don't think a lot of people often do think about. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you, if you are going to supplement your toddler and obviously they're not, they're not swallowing um, capsules or, you know, supplements in the way that adults do, how do you both go about sourcing quality supplements? Cause that's, you know, that's really important, but then also, um, are there good you know, brands out there or, or, whether they're like liquid supplements, how do they, how do they sort of maximize giving them to small children? Yeah. So, you know, sort of uh, addressing the question of uh, these supplementation and, and who needs what, I would also say the same thing too, if I was talking to a parent of an omnivore or a vegetarian, a lot of kids' diets are lacking, right? So we tend to focus so much on these nutrients of concern in plant-based diets. And yes, there are nutrients that are harder to get in a plant-based diet, again, especially considering smaller stomachs, selective eating that we need to ensure that we're getting. There's also nutrients that we see are lacking in omnivore populations, right? They tend to have really low levels of vitamin C, of vitamin A, of fiber. So we also wanna make sure that whatever diet we're feeding our children is going to be appropriately planned. And that may or should include supplements, depending on what's going on and where you're able to source these foods from. Uh, there are thankfully on the market, lots of really good supplements out there that are suitable for younger kids because they're going to be in liquid form. So we actually have a free supplement guide on our website. Uh, it's totally free. You can download it. It's pretty in depth. It's like 11 pages because we tried to put all of the things that we'd want you to think about or to consider in there. Uh, so it sort of goes through all of the nutrients of focus. So things like again, DHA, vitamin D, iron, et cetera, probiotics, uh, and then sort of what to look for and some of our favorite brands. None of it is sponsored. It's just sort of like, hey, these are the brands we feel comfortable using with our kids. There's lots of other ones out there. As you sort of go onto the label, this is what you want to look for. 
Um, but yeah, for, for my kids, they're, they're so weird. They love vitamins. Like my son, when he wakes up in the morning, he's, you know, we go downstairs and he says something like, okay, we're going to get our drops and then it's time for breakfast. And he just sits there and like, you know, he counts them out. He wants to make sure we do them in order. Like he's really into the drops, uh, which is funny because some of them taste a little, little fishy. Uh, my daughter's the same way. She's 14 months. She loves it. She like opens her mouth and wants the drops in them. So I do it that way. Some parents, you know, will add it into beverages, add them into smoothies. Uh, once they get a little bit older, there are options out there. You know, there's gummies, there's chewables. I'm not so opposed to those depending on what sort of they're made of and what the ingredients are, because we don't have that many options, right? I need your child to take this nutrient depending on what it is. So if that means it comes with a gram of sugar, fine. Right. Like I'm, I'm much more down with that than I am saying, oh, it's not pure enough. You can't have it. And then missing out on that, you know, needed nutrient. Yeah, no, it's funny. You just reminded me when I, when I went to Japan during flu season a couple of years ago, I swear these like edelberry gummies, like <laughs> I swear, I swear by these edelberry gummies and yes, they have like a gram of sugar in them. But I was like, every single person on my trip, like got so ill except for me. And I was like, and I take a lot of supplements, so I'm sure, but I, I yeah, I there, there's good gram, research. Gram gram grams, yeah. I don't think that cream of sugar, like I was giving them to people too on my trip. I was like, eat this, eat this. Um, but <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I think it's like, you have to pick and choose, right? Like if you eat a pretty clean diet, that gram of sugar is not going to destroy exactly. you or your child. Yes. But, um, my, I have a question about soy. Cause you did mention mm -hmm. soy milk, but I know soy is such a, um, it's like buzzy because I know it could affect, you know, female hormones and different things like that. So can we just talk a little bit about soy as a yes. plant-based milk alternative and just a plant-based food? Let's see. Yeah. I, I love the topic of soy because I think that you know, it, it can feel really confusing, right? We see things like isoflavins or phytoestrogens and like, oh, that sounds really scary, right? Uh, but when we step back and sort of say, okay, what is the mechanism of perhaps these phytoestrogens, right? So soy is contains what's called selective estrogen receptor modules. So estrogen, the hormone, perhaps when it attaches to various tissues, I'm going to get sciencey just for like two quick seconds. It's able to react specifically to those tissues phytoestrogens are also able to bind to those same receptors, but they don't have the exact same mechanism in every tissue. So for example, in uh, breast tissue, it's able to turn off certain modulators and perhaps bone tissue, it's able to turn them on, which is why we see research showing that soy can be protective against breast cancer because it's going to act a specific way on that tissue versus also being protective against osteoporosis because it's going to act a different way on that tissue. So phytoestrogens are not the same as estrogens and they don't act the same way in the body. And they can even block estrogen receptors, which may be a good thing depending on where they're sort of going into the body. If we only had animal studies when it comes to soy, and these are referenced a lot, then that would be perhaps something that would make it more controversial because rodents, non-human primates don't metabolize phytoestrogens the same way that humans do. So a lot of times you'll see in various 
groups or, you know, books, whatever, they'll talk about sort of the quote unquote dangers of soy. And they cite these, these animal studies. And again, that would be perhaps concerning if that's all that we have, but soy is actually fairly well studied and has been studied for decades. Uh, there's about 2000 studies that come out on soy every year, human studies, human trials. Uh, and we're able to sort of see from the vast majority of the research that soy is not only helpful, but likely beneficial. And we talk specifically about kids. Uh, so we're able to look at soy, not only from sort of these, these random control trials that are really good at sort of understanding that the levels that soy is needed and what the possible benefits are, but also we look at observational studies from various population groups where soy is a big part of the traditional diet. So when we look at places perhaps like Japan or China or other sort of Asian populations where soy foods tend to be a higher part of the diet, that also is aligned with the research that we show seeing lower rates of prostate cancer, of breast cancer, of um, you know, endometrial cancer, any sort of other of these like hormonally based cancers. When it comes to females in particular, especially younger girls, uh, there is good research showing that if you're giving soy foods to prepubescent girls, so before puberty, uh, they have a lower rate of breast cancer as they, as they get older. Uh, we don't have the same research to show that's true in boys with prostate cancer, but uh, we can sort of assume that similar mechanisms exist, uh, but we don't have the data to really say that this is, you know, a, a good thing and a good association. But that's my long way of saying uh, there's a lot of things to consider when it comes to soy. Uh, you can sort of, you know, cherry pick if you need to, but when we look at the human trials, we look at human studies and we look at population data and look at the vast majority of these thousands and thousands of studies, uh, we see that soy is safe and also likely health promoting. And that's also uh, shown to in all of the sort of governing bodies, right? So they're all recommending soy, uh, you know, the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the uh, American Academy of Dietetics and Nutrition, like all of those are also saying that soy is very safe. We are so excited to offer our listeners a new discount to one of the best probiotic supplements on the market, Seed. Whether you are a Patreon member in our nutrition community or a regular listener of the podcast, you know that Allie and I are both very serious when it comes to the importance of gut health and building a thriving microbiome. I personally have been using seed for months and have noticed a big difference in my digestion and bloating. I am now devoted to taking seed every morning before food and I'm really excited to share their daily symbiotic with our audience. The formulation of the Daily Symbiotic combines a probiotic and prebiotic, is vegan and gluten-free, and includes 24 clinically studied naturally occurring strains not found in yogurt or fermented foods and beverages, and lives up to the highest standards for human and planetary health. Yes. In addition to being a really reliable probiotic and prebiotic supplement, Seed is committed to creating science-based education for all those that partner with them through accountable advertising at Seed University. This is where we are all committed to not spreading misinformation about health on the internet, which is pretty important. Also, I personally love their commitment to sustainability with a refill system and all recyclable or biodegradable packaging materials. Erica and I only advertise products that we use and feel are of benefit to us and by extension could be of value to our community. If you would like to order C daily symbiotics to incorporate into your own gut health routine, 
go to seed.com and use Courageous15 at checkout for 15% off, or click on the link in our show notes or the link tree on Instagram. We have an exciting new discount for our listeners with Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic offers superfood coffee and elixirs to upgrade your daily routine. The powerful antioxidants, antiviral effects, and immune-boosting properties of mushrooms transform your cup of joe from an energy-boosting treat to a health-enhancing choice. Along with mushroom coffee, Four Sigmatic also offers mushroom elixirs, mushroom hot cocos, and other shroom-filled products. Erica uses the lion's mane in her morning superfood coffee, and even though I hate mushrooms, I absolutely love the products, especially the matcha latte powder, which contains myataki mushrooms and adaptogens. For 10% off Four Sigmatic products, visit foursigmatic.com and use the code COURAGEOUS at checkout, and there's also a direct link in our show notes. Do you suggest sourcing soy in a certain way as far as whether it's like what would people want to look for because I know there's also a lot about the way we genetically modify it in this country Uh, again kind of always going back to that like agricultural component and also that there's a lot of like hydrogenated like soybean oil and fillers and things which is not the same thing as eating tempeh or perhaps a good quality soy milk or uh edamame or tofu or whatever it might be. So how would you suggest someone um, source the healthiest form of soy? And I don't just mean like one type. I just mean quality in their diets. So, so soybean oil is going to be a different uh, component of the food than taking that whole soy food, right? When we're talking about health benefits, I'm talking about the soy protein, uh, the, the items that are found really synergistically too in sort of those whole food items. So tempeh, edamame, soy, uh, soy milk, tofu, not necessarily the soybean oil, which really is just primarily fat. Um, when it comes to GMO, so I hear this a lot. People will say things like, oh, 90% of the soy that's grown is genetically modified. And that is true because the majority of soy grown is actually used for animal feed and not for human consumption, right? So the soy that's grown for um, perhaps let's say cow's feed is actually going to be a different type of soy than the soy that's going to be grown to use tofu. Uh, When you go to the market and source things like tofu or even edamame or soy milk, most of it is actually going to say organic on there or non-GMO on there. I I actually think it's harder to find uh, GMO tofu than it is to find organic tofu because actually the majority of it out there is going to be uh, organic. And if it's organic, then it's naturally going to be non-GMO. So that's sort of like one of those umbrella terms that's in sort of that organic label. Um, but yes, GMO soy is very common. Uh, that's a, that's a whole nother issue, especially when it comes to monocultures and sort of how we grow foods. Uh, but most of that is actually used for animal feed and not for true human consumption, sort of in the direct way we eat it in an indirect way, which always makes me laugh because I feel like people that are so concerned about soy, I'm like, okay, well, if you're concerned about estrogen, you know, dairy milk is like literally breast milk that you're drinking that actually has estrogen in it. And the soy that you're whatever, you know, cow, pig, chick, whatever is eating, uh, is soy. So you're, you're getting it somehow. So it always kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. Um, the, the anti-soy, but totally okay with like estrogen 
uh, breast milk. Yeah, no, <laughs> milk. absolutely. It's funny. I've been, I actually been dairy free for over 10 years due to inflammation, acne, all this stuff that happened. Um, I think being a child of the eighties that just all, like was fed nonstop and, uh, cow's milk. I think just one day my body was like, Nope, not anymore. But this idea that, yes, I think that's a really good point that you make where it's like, we need to think about if you are not pre- predominantly plant-based and listening to this, you know, it's important to think about what we eat, what, what we eat eats. And so this idea of, yeah, of like where most of the soy, the GMO soy goes is in the diets of the animals that are eaten and consumed by us. So, yes. um, and maybe another reason to incorporate more plant-based eating just, well, and that's really uh, it, right? You know, uh, it, it, again, it doesn't have to, my, my message is not to turn everyone vegan. Like I said in the beginning, I'm not vegan. You know, I sort of say like I'm, I'm 95% plant-based and that really works for me and it's worked for me for a really long time. Um, but I can also say that just like we know that kids don't eat enough of these nutrients uh, in general, adults are severely lacking as well. You know, we talked about the protein issue. Most adults get about three times the amount of protein that they need. They get about a half of the amount of fiber that they need. Fiber is only only found in plant foods. So even just like shifting the diet a little bit, adding more plant foods, you're only going to see more benefits, you know, especially when we talk about some of these plant proteins, like beans and legumes and, you know, lentils, like these are such nutrient dense, rich items. They're, you know, aligned with the reduction of so many chronic diseases. And it's really a huge benefit to put more of those on your plate, even if you still want to put some animal products on your plate too. Uh, yeah, no, I love that. I love it so much. I think we're all, we're very aligned in that way. Um, very much so. And I, so I'm curious, your, is your whole family, your, your husband, your, everyone is plant-based. Yes. Wow. That's yes. so cool. Um, so I guess I'm curious too. So in terms of, I know you said 95%, so mm-hmm. maybe this is that 5%, but you know, socially, I think with kids, right? Like once I'm sure it's easier to control what they're eating before they go into school and, or maybe even not like before they have friends and they see what their friends are eating and what's going on there. So how do you navigate children and that kind of social component? Um, yeah. When yeah. they see like what their friends are eating or birthday parties or summer camps and things like that. So it's going to look different in, in every family, right? What works for one family is not going to work for the other family. And also know too, that what works for you at one period of time may need to evolve, right? So like my son is three and a half. Uh, he very much knows what cheese is. Uh, my husband, I, my husband's family are dairy farmers, uh, coincidentally. So my husband sort of says like, I can be like mostly vegan, but I do need my cheese occasionally. And he loves it. And he like refuses to eat vegan cheese. And that's totally great and fine. So we occasionally have it in our home. My son knows about it. He eats it. He loves it. Right. So, um, when he wants to go to his grandparents' house and they're having cheese pizza, awesome. Right. Like I don't care at all. I'm not going to me, it would feel, uh, more of a difficult thing to say to him, oh no, you cannot have that and put that restriction on him. And and that's because too, you know, we know that whatever kind of foods we're talking about, the more restrictive we are with our kids, it's likely going to backfire. And I don't want that. I want him to be not only healthy with the foods he's eating, but also healthy with his attitude about food, right? I don't want him to be scared or nervous of food or feel like he has to hide it or, you know, perhaps even binge it in secret when he gets older because he thinks that he's not going to be able to eat these things 
things in front of me. And that's going to go for all animal foods, right? So right now he's only been introduced to cheese and then occasionally some eggs. Uh, but you know, one day he's going to realize there are animal foods out there that involve meat. Uh, and if he decides he wants to eat them, you know, that's going to be his decision, right? You know, he is sort of his own person, his own autonomy when it comes to, to those sort of things right now, he's young enough where I don't have to worry about those decisions so much, but we're slowly sort of testing that, especially as we go to things like birthday parties and, you know, friends houses where there are those kind of foods out there. Um, right now he sort of knows that we don't don't eat animals. So he says things like, you know, mom, we don't eat hippos. Like, no, we don't eat hippos. Like, and we don't eat ducks, right? Like, no, we don't eat ducks. Like he, he doesn't understand that there are like certain foods that are more normal to eat and other animals that aren't. Uh, so he just sort of thinks it's funny that like someone out there is maybe eating a hippo. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so when we go to birthday parties, if someone's having cupcakes and they're not vegan, I don't care at all. If, you know, there's cheese pizza, I don't care at all. Right now I have not let him have any meat. So if there's like a pepperoni, I'll say like, oh, is there a cheese pizza available? So that's sort of how, how we're navigating it right now. But again, that may change, that may evolve. And I'm really open to sort of letting him help me navigate this. That's really cool. I think, um, I think for all the parents that listen to our show, I think this conversation is going to be really helpful. I also am thinking, thinking about it in the context of, you know, we know more and more over the last, whatever, 20 years of research, how important gut health is for um, our immune building a healthy immune system, all this stuff. So I imagine that even if it's not like, as you said, it's not dogmatic because you don't want to set these restrictions that can create disordered eating later in life and emotional stuff around that, but having children, like setting the base with so much plant food at such an early stage in their life, I imagine, I don't know what, like, again, the studies on this um, have been done, but like the quality of the microbiome that gets developed then that they have, like, even if they choose later on to, you know, I don't know, eat a hot dog, yeah. be able to, you know, have that set up for like those early years. I was thinking about it. My partner said he was like, I was a vegetarian. I was raised a vegetarian. His parents were like hippies in Vermont. <laughs> he was age seven. And he's like, then I went to school, you know, the first grade and I had like a hot dog and he's like, well, it was kind of all over. But at the same time, he had seven years of like eating, you know, yeah. ton of plants as a child so that your palate develops differently. Your gut microbiome develops differently. The amount of fiber that you get, like all around, you're setting yourself up, even if later, you know, later in life or whatever, you know, as a teenager, you want pizza and ice cream. It, you still have that foundation in a different way. And I think that's so vital. Like Erica and I joke, have you seen that little, um, She's, she's like close, she's probably two now, but there's a, there's a, a guy who's on, he has an Instagram. I don't know his actual name. Oh, his, his Flav I don't know his actual name either, but his Instagram handle is Flav City. And he has a two-year-old who eats girl, everything. Like she eats everything. And I think, and she cooks with him and it's so sweet, but I just think about it. I was like, wow, this child, even just like developing a palate. So this idea of like picky eating that tends to happen too, like, you know, having a taste for beans and lentils and things like that at age two, three, four. I mean, I think 
my parents didn't like them because, you know, they just, I think I had to like, wait till I was an adult to enjoy legumes. So, um, I just think about like the foundation that your philosophy can create from a health perspective for children, um, no matter what the rest, what yeah. the rest happens, you know? I mean, that's, that's really one of the things that we say to all parents, right? Is any of these foods that we're introducing in young childhood, they're going to be part of the food culture. You know, I mean, all of the foods that we consider to be normal, that we consider usually that we like, those are all taste preferences that are developed in early childhood. So the more that we can give our kids this sort of ability to say like, oh yeah, a lentil isn't a weird food or, you know, black beans are like, yeah, we always have black beans and tacos. Like it's weird not to have black beans and tacos. That's sort of, sort of the, the lessons that we're imparting without having to actually impart lessons, right? And so, like I said in the beginning, we don't have a ton of research that we know can say, okay, if we do this to our kids and they're going to have, you know, the same results that adults do later in life when it comes to plant-based eating and sort of the plethora of research we have there. But we can, you know, assume for the most part that if these kids are raised on these foods, they're likely going to be preferring more plants as they get older. And then all of the benefits that we know exist uh, as we sort of age until older adulthood are likely going to be even more beneficial because you've been started on this path for so long. Um, you know, gut health in particular, we don't have the data to say, you know, this is what happens to a two-year-old's microbiome on a, on a vegan plant-based diet versus, you know, sort of an omnivore diet. But again, I think we can make a lot of assumptions on what happens when you sort of breed that microbiome with lots of prebiotic fibers and, you know, nutrients that are found in plant foods that aren't going to be found in animal-based foods. And we have that data in adults, right? And we know sort of the, the benefits that happen there. So, you know, I think that for anyone listening, regardless of what is on your plate or your child child's plate, the more plants that we can get on there is only going to have, uh, you know, better health outcomes. Absolutely. And I think this is a great segue into the book, right? So you have this new book, which is so exciting. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is in the book and what readers can expect? Yeah. So the, the book is really what Whitney and I, you know, were looking for when we were pregnant, you know, back then I remember going to the bookstore and being like, okay, so you have these options written by like celebrities or you don't have anything. Okay. There's gotta be something in the middle here because I wanted something that was like evidence-based. I really like science. Like I, we, Whitney and I try to say like, we are not dogmatic, you know, we'll be open and honest to say like, we don't know, you know, we don't have that research there or like, well, actually, you know, maybe a predominantly plant-based approach is better here than a strict vegan. Like we try to really say like, this is what the science says. We're not here to necessarily convince you to raise your kids vegan. We're here to say that we think a plant-based approach to, to children's nutrition is likely a more optimal optimal pattern for, you know, growth and development. Um, so that being said, we felt like there wasn't that resource out there and we wanted to create it. So we wrote the plant-based baby and toddler. Uh, it's really sort of the, the, the comprehensive guide that you would need to introducing solids and really to feeding kids optimally right from the start. So we have information on nutrition, we have information on meal planning, on sort of how to get the nutrition actually onto the plate. We talk a lot about postpartum nutrition, infant nutrition. Uh, we talk a lot about starting solids. And then sort of all of these questions that we've addressed, you know, recently, right? The picky eating, the how do we deal with social situations? What happens when our kids go to school? All of the sort of other things that we need to think about when it comes to feeding kids, because we can't just feed our kids in a bubble, right? At some point, they're going to be exposed to other things. How do we deal with desserts, with sweets, et cetera? And then recipes, because Whitney and I like to say, it's not nutrition unless it's eaten. 
So I can talk all day long about how awesome hemp seeds and chia seeds are, but if my son's not going to eat them, it doesn't matter. And so our recipes are really trying to sort of bridge that gap to say, okay, now here's sort of our, our 50 recipes really for the whole family, but definitely kid friendly. How do we sort of encourage our kids to eat more of these foods more often? Thank you. That's Sounds such a great resource, and I look forward to at some point using it myself. So, um, and maybe Erica too. So, um, yeah. So, as we wrap up, we always ask our guests uh, three questions. So, the first one is, you know, you're a busy mom, you are an author and a dietitian. How do you take care of yourself? Like, what is your daily daily self care, or do you have any non negotiables in that? Yeah. My non-negotiable is sleep, uh, which is really hard with two young kids. I, my husband, and I actually going on vacation next week and I'm like, I'm most excited that no one gets to call my name in like the middle of the night. It's like, I don't have to answer to anyone being like, mommy, mom, like, no, I just get to sleep. So I, I really try to get a uh, good quality sleep where I can. And then the first thing I do when I wake up is I go work out. That's sort of my like non-negotiable most days, not every day. Uh, but I would say most days sort of like my time. I know that if I don't get it in the morning, it's just not going to happen later in the day with everything else that goes on. So I really try to dedicate like that first hour, no matter what, if I can get out there, do something and then come back. And I'm a much better uh, mom to my kids if I do that too. That is wonderful. Um, the next question we always ask is what does being courageous mean to you? Oh, that's a good one. You know, I, to me, I think courageous means just really, really being in line with what I believe, like sort of what my like, you know, ethical moral compass is, especially when that goes against uh, what sort of is considered not normal or, you know, against the grain. And so there's been a lot of times I've had to sort of make what I consider, not just like courageous, but just different decisions based on, you know, what my belief sets are. And I'm hoping to also instill that in my kids as well. Like, it's okay to say no, even if that makes you feel like that's not what everyone else is doing. Great. Thank you so much. And then in addition to your own book, which we will put all the details um, about in our show notes, do you have any book recommendations that have been just particularly um, meaningful to you? It can be on anything. It doesn't have to necessarily be on nutrition. Yeah. My, my favorite book, it's not necessarily nutrition, but it's, it's, it's what convinced my husband or it's one of my husband's favorite book. We, we read it together. He like really changed his diet afterwards, but I love it. Uh, it's called eating animals. Uh, it's more of a like philosophical book. It's not really a nutrition book. If you like the omnivores dilemma, it's sort of in a similar vein, right? But it's, it's a really beautiful book. It's really well done. Um, and it's one of my favorites. I gift it often. Yay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we gained so much from this conversation as Ali shared. It's definitely something when we have children one day we will be using, and I'm sure our listeners gained a ton from. So if anyone wants to find you, follow you, buy the book, if they don't have it already or don't follow you already, where can they do all of that? Yeah. So our book is really available anywhere books are sold. So all of the major retailers, smaller shops as well. It's called The Plant-Based Baby and Toddler. Uh, you can find us really on all social platforms, but especially Instagram at uh, Plant-Based Juniors. And then our website is plantbasedjuniors.com. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks Thank for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Courageous Wellness. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode featuring a different guest each week. 
subscribe, rate, and write us a nice review. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Courageous Wellness or get in touch via our website, www.courageouswellness.net, where you can also find additional info about our health coaching services, virtual group events, newsletter, and more. Until next week, I'm Allie. And I'm Erica, and we're Courageous Wellness.